0: The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome John Spellan. John Spillane is a musician, songwriter, performer, recording artist, storyteller, poet and dreamer. Rooted in people, place and story, his music transports the listener and his live performances captivate audiences around the world. John's music is inspired by and encapsulates Irish traditional music in its contemporary form, a reflection of Ireland today. A two-time Meteor Award winner for Best Folk Trad Act, John is one of the most accomplished songwriters in Ireland. With an extensive back catalogue beginning with the 1997 album, The Wells of the World, his songs have been covered by Christy Moore, Sharon Shannon, Sean Keane and many others. Twelve albums later, John is set to release his first independent album in 20 years, 100 Snow White Horses. Welcome to the show, John. How are you? Great, Simon. Thanks for having me. Lovely to meet you. It's lovely to meet you too, John, and it's a pleasure. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on my, my little podcast. It's growing and growing, but it's great to have a guest like yourself on it. I've been a big fan of your music for years, and I think you have a a distinctive sound and a very um, original sound. And it's very refreshing sometimes to hear it, you know, in this modern kind of world of not knowing who singers are, where they're from. You know, you know, instantly you're an Irishman and you know. That your roots are steeped in Irish history and everything. So it's really nice, you know? Ah, uh, you're very kind. H- how was everything? You're in, in, you're in um, Passage West in Cork. Yeah, that's where you live. That's where I am. Um, I'm in Passage West. And I tell you, it was a f-
1: stunning morning here, man, on the river. Um, we have the, the Lower Harbour area, you know. There was a lovely fog on the river this morning, a lot of sunshine and f- mixed with the fog. Um, I went out to see the ferry crossing, walking the dog. Stunning the fog the fog has cleared and we're hoping for a nice day but it's getting a bit cloudy you now but um yeah i'm in a fabulous place here man i'm in cork harbor the lower harbor area
0: yes wow and and right now you know how is the lockdown affecting passage west there i mean are, are the numbers high or low around cork or what's it like the numbers are um low in cork
1: at the moment thank's be to god and like we're i'm 7 miles outside this outside of the city here um You know, so I'm off the main drag. I'm kind of in the country, really. And um, so it's grand and quiet here. So you know, things are, you know, I'm we're getting on fine in this house, you know. So um, fingers crossed now, fingers crossed. Now we're keeping well away
0: from everyone. I love that. That's a great thing. We're getting on fine in this house. That's that's brilliant, because I suppose if you don't get on well in the house you're in, it's hard to get on well in the outside world. Well, we're staying well away from everyone. Like we're taking it very serious, and
1: and all that, you know. So, um, so please, God, no, the numbers will go down.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, obviously, we're we're going to talk about your new album later on. So th- that, like, uh, you're you're kind of busy at the moment, you know, in preparation for putting the album out there, and your new single is out at the moment and everything. So you must be pretty busy, no? I'm busy, Simon. And um, you know what I, what it is? I'm riding a beautiful wave.
1: Um, Um, I I turned 60 there in um, January. Um, I'm 60 years old. And um, I mean, I knew it was coming. Like, it it can't be. It shouldn't be that much of a shock. But I'm celebrating it by um, releasing, uh, I think, my best record ever, really. Well, a very, very strong record. 100 Snow White Horses. And um, so um, last week now, I had a fabulous week. And I was the, the most, my new single, We Come in the Wind. Which, as you, it's very Irish historical kind of a thing, um, it's uh, it's uh, the most played song on RTE Radio One last week.
0: Yes, I saw that. That's brilliant. That's a great achievement. So I'm over the moon,
1: really. And then I was up in RTE Dublin and Donnybrook um, last week, and I recorded a new version of my one of my songs, All the Ways You Wander, was translated into Irish by a, a writer called Simon O'Feolein from West Kerry, and then it was sung by Niamh Farrell. She's a brilliant singer from Sligo. Wow. Traditional singer. And it was performed with the RTE Concert Orchestra. They were at home in their little boxes, like. But I play guitar. Yes. I play Spanish guitar. You're you you're you in Madrid. Um I, I, I I'm I'm mad for the Spanish guitars myself. This one I have here is um this is um my uh, working guitar and it's a guitar de Artesania, Manuel Rodriguez, Almansa, Espana. Wow, very nice. Um I have two Rodriguez. Yeah. So, um, Do you have that guitar for a long time? Well, this one I have, I'd say, about um, maybe
2: fif-
1: yeah, it's tw- about 15 years. I have this one, but it's an old guitar. Yeah. And even though it's well-battered, this guitar cost a £1,000 when it was a new guitar in the 1970s. Wow. You know, and it's a, it's a very good guitar, but it's it's admired by all, really. But I got to play it with the RTE Concert Orchestra. Now, I'm a kind of a rock and roller, folky. Yeah. Right? So for me to play with the uh, orchestra was a, a first. And... um. It was a great thrill. Wow! You know to play a Spanish guitar with with the orchestra. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean the, the the Spanish guitars are are lovely. I mean I have a downstairs in my kind of sitting room. I have a Spanish guitar that I kind of play in the evenings, and i I've, I've written some songs and stuff. But it's a lo- They have a lovely sound and a lovely feel. And I mean, and for you. You know, for your music, I think it really adds to your music, and it it has that distinctive sound with it.
1: Thank you so much. Well, my whole guitar style is very influenced by by Steve Cooney. I don't know if you're familiar with the great Steve Cooney. Steve,
0: I know Steve. Yeah,
1: he came to Ireland, and he kind of uh, he he um, transformed a lot of musicians. You know, he was very influential character, and he played a uh, nylon string guitar in a harp like style, and it's very associated with the Irish harp. Yes, you know, and so it's Irish guitar. It's Irish guitar, you could say, and I'm I'm influenced by Steve. He changed my world in that I, stole, I sold my steel string guitar and bought a nylon string guitar when I saw Steve Cooney. And uh, that's 20 years ago. I'm playing it ever since, or more.
0: Brilliant. That's really good. Yeah, he's, he's a great player, I mean. And he's a great bass player, great guitar player, great musician in general, isn't he?
1: He is, and he just brought out his first record, his first solo record, about six months ago. And it's the tunes of the Irish Harpers. Oh, Have you heard it? I haven't yet. I didn't know that was out. Yeah, it's to, to die for, Simon. And like there, there's um, tunes by Carolyn, Eleanor Plunkett now and and, um, these fabulous tunes by Torlach O'Caroline. It's harp music played on the guitar by Cooney. Um, It's really beautiful.
0: Wow, that's really nice. I must have a listen to that. I hadn't seen or heard from him in a while, so it'd be nice to to see what he's doing at the moment. That's really good. So so listen, John, we'll go back a little bit because in this show, we kind of we look at your personal journey and your life so far um and you know let's go back to so your early life in, in Wilton you were you were you lived in Wilton didn't you with your brothers and your mum that's right yeah. i'm i'm from um, Laburnum
1: Lawn in Wilton the suburb of Cork you know and it would be seen as slight, slightly snobby like you know you know like not dog rough like you know yeah. as these suburbs go like um Bishopstone would be a bit fancy enough, like it would be seen as being fancy, you know. So basically, like you could call it um, semi detached suburbia on the west side of Cork City. I grew up and, um, but all belonged to me are from Bantry in West Cork. My mother was from Bantry, my father was from Bantry. And um, my father died when we were very small and left my mother with five small boys. Wow. Like one, two, three, you know, like steps of the stairs. So, um, in order to give her a bit of a break, we were sent to um, Bantry a lot, you know, for the holidays, especially. And down to the farm, to her home place. So I had kind of two childhoods. I had my city childhood and my I had my um, country ch- um, childhood. And the country childhood was 50 miles down the road to Bantry. But it was like going back in time, 50 years. like Because it was, um, it was a bare concrete floor. It was a big turf fire. It was my grandmother on the hob, you know, next wow. to the turf fire. It was the horse and cart. It was milking the cows twice a day. It was a fabulous life. Saving the hay, you know. So then we would be down there for all the holidays and then we'd be up in Cork for the, um, for the school times. And, um, and we lived in a lovely place in, like in Wilton, like the very edge of the countryside, you could say where the country meets the city. Wow. You know, at the end, at the end of our garden, at the end of our garden, even like it was the countryside really. So, um.
0: So that's my background. Wow, that's really, you just reminded me, uh, yesterday evening I was watching something and uh, there's this fantastic program, I don't know if you've ever seen it, and it's called Seven Up, and it's about this guy, he's a famous director, Michael Apted, I think his name is, but he he created this show in 1964 called Seven Up, and he looked at the lives of seven-year-olds from different backgrounds and different classes, you know, rich, poor, middle class. And what he did every seven years, he created a new program. And the next one was 14 Up, 21 Up, and so on. And his latest one is called 63 Up. So he, look, he every seven years, he looked at their <laughs> lives. And now at the moment, they are 63, these children. And he looks at what they've done now and everything. But just what you said there about having that different life in, in Bantry and on the farm you see how that kind of upbringing can really change a child's behavior and who they are, as opposed to being a city person. No.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: uh, you know, we slipped from one to the other very comfortably. You know, or, or I had, I, I would have seen myself as, you know, I love the farm, you know, and I love the, I love the cow dung and the whole smell of the horse and the boots yeah. and the leather and, you know, the the male, the in, the Indian male that you feed the cattle and the whole, you know. And in the country, like we were dirty and we only got scrubbed once a week for to go to mass on a Sunday when you'd go into Bantry town. Yeah. So we were quite wild and free. And, um, and, but I mean, it was lovely because my, my uncle and aunt down there and my grandmother, they took us so much on board.
0: Yes. Do
1: you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
2: That's
0: so, like, we were very at home there. That's really good. And, yeah. and I see as well, obviously, you know, you have a, 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 a rich musical heritage, but your mom was a huge influence on, on your musical heritage, wasn't she? I mean, she she influenced you a lot with Irish song. Well,
1: yeah, well, she, she did. And uh, like my mother did not sing that much, but she like she sang the odd s- snippet of a song. But I mean, like it was more the Bantry crowd, really. There was a lot of singing down there and they sang Milking the cows, and they sang around the fire at night. And there was a lot of ballads. Right. You know, um, I would have been I would have got a big education in Irish Republican ballads as a child. OK. And also a lot of Irish geog- geographical ballads, like, you know, songs about other places in Ireland and sen- sentimental Irish ballads. And I suppose in the 1960s in Ireland, they were all the rage, you know, um, Come Down From the Mountain, Katie Daly. Yeah, and, yeah. And the lonely Woods of Upton for Sh- Sinn Féin and um, The Old Fenian Gun and Will You Stand in the Band Like a, a True Irish Man. I suppose patriotic
0: ballads and... Um, Irish ballads of all kinds. Yeah, yeah. Some some great songs. And you you were like in, in Wilton, but you went to school in Bishopstown, did you?
1: Yeah, I did. Well, uh, first of all, I had a great schooling in primary school in um, in the heart of Cork City in a place called St. Joseph's down the Mardyke. Okay. We were sent into town to go to school because our father and uncles had gone there before. And uh, St. Joseph's is a fabulous little school and it's on the banks of the River Lee. And like there's big... Flock of swans on at the back of the school and a big turn in the river there, and you've them like the Mardyke is a special place in Cork. Like you've got Fitzgerald's Park and the Shaky Bridge and you've got Sundays Well above it, it's very much a magical kind of a place. And I had that thing
0: that a lot of Cork people have of like really loving Cork, yeah. really, <laughs> really loving Cork City. Yes, yes, it's it's a funny thing, isn't yeah. it? Because. People people do say to me in Spain here, they say, so, you know, people from Dublin are very different to people from Galway. And I say, yeah. And they say, and then there's Cork. And I say, yeah. And I say, Cork is very different entirely. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, there's this pride in Cork where the people, you know, they look at Dublin and other cities and they go, well, Cork is the real capital of Ireland. And but it's not, it's not a, some might call it arrogance, but it's not an arrogance. It's more just a real strong pride, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean,
1: well, I don't know. If, look, so we're kind of known for it. But I mean, definitely for me, Cork um, City of my childhood was a very magical place, you know. And like we'd go to town after school and the idea of going into the city centre, to me, was very magical. And when I think of it, looking back, I mean, I was going into town when, like at the end of the 1960s, when there was a very different city. And there was a lot of old characters there. There was a lot of, it was a bit like Charles Dickens, kind of. There was a lot of old warehouses and factories and, you know, tenements and ramshackle, interesting things. But um, like Frank O'Connor, who's a famous short story writer from Cork, said in admiration of Cork City, he said, you know, he said, it's the hills. You know, it's, there's two rivers that, you know, divide and form, the city center is on an island in two, in two rivers, two branches of the River Lee, you know. And then you have the ups and downs of it as if it was built in a cork accent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, lilting. <laughs> yes. Wow, that's really. And so would you say, you know, when you look back as, as being a, a teenager or a young child there, uh, do, do you kind of think, well, I did more of my hobbies and activities in, in the city or more in the country? Do you think, you know, you spent as a teenager, you spent more time in the city or the country? Well, in the city, really. I mean,
1: we were city kids, really. Like, I mean, we, we did have a, you know, a country self, but that would start on the first day of the holidays when we'd go down and we'd spend the, the whole summer below, but we'd be back. So, I mean, I think, you know, I stopped going to Bantry really when I was 18 and when I left school and grew up and got a full time job. And you only get two, you know, weeks holidays a year. And unfortunately, that came to an end at that time, you know? Mm and uh, it would just be occasional visits there after that. Yeah. And so my teenage years would have been,
0: yeah. You, did you have, like, do you remember being a teenager and saying, okay, I'm, I'm playing music? Or do you remember playing football? Or did you have other activities and hobbies you did?
1: Yeah, well, I, I played, um, we played, we played a lot of street soccer. We played soccer on the street all the time. Um, I was mad for um, uh, going down the quarry and climbing trees and building camps in the woods. I was mad for climbing trees as a child and as a, even as a teenager, you know, and tree houses and um, camps of different kinds. We had, um, even at the back of our house, we had, um, there was a meadow and uh, an orchard. And at the end of that, there was a big quarry, which filled it with water every winter. Right. I suppose a natural kind of a turlock. And uh, so I was mad for nature. And um, I was not that keen on school, even though I was kind of goodish at school. I was not into, you know, I thought we should have been out. You know, I thought it was terrible tortures to keep teenagers locked in a school five days a week. I thought we should have been out running free in the woods, you know, like fishing and
0: hunting and, you know, enjoying life. It's a thing that's been embraced nowadays with kids is that they're realizing that that free play. When one time we used to look back at it and it was kind of in the public schools and the private schools, they would have them doing, you know, activities and ballet and with the girls. And, you know, they, but in the in the public schools where there was less money um, they would have, you know, the kids would just play in the patio or the playground. And nowadays they're kind of embracing that free play because it's great to just let kids run around and do whatever they want and be adventurous, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, that, that, that's very good. No, that's interesting. Yeah. So um, when we were about me and my buddies, when we were about 15, then I started playing the guitar and that became all the rage. Yeah. And uh, we were lucky because the school we went to, uh, it was a new suburb and it was a new school uh, in Bishopstone. And uh, there was a lot of teachers there who were very young. And um, I suppose being a new school, but there was one eccentric teacher there who put on a big musical show every year. He also had a mountaineering club and a sailing club. And he was all go with the extracurricular stuff. And I learned a lot more from the extracurricular schooling than what I got from the proper schooling. and. we did a big show, and I was, I'd say, 13 when I was put on the stage um, as a, as an Israelite in um, in, a, in a rock musical called Holy Moses. Oh wow! And then um, I was picked out as a soloist because I had a boy soprano voice. You yeah. know what I mean? I had a very good, big belter of a voice as a child. And then the following year, I was picked as one of the swans in the Children of Lir, which was a rock musical by a Cork musician called Brian O'Reilly and his and his rock band, Lotus Whisper. But I was in, um, I suppose I was in third year then, but my voice broke and I lost, I've never regained the heights I had as a boy soprano, Simon. Wow. Um, You know, like, but I did get a love for the stage and for these rock musicals. And what I'm even doing now, like 100 Snow White Horses, my new album, it's a bit like the Children of Lair. Yes. You know what I mean? It's Irish mythology. So I think I had those... Those shows had a very big impact on me. I saw it as a kind of a, a path in life.
0: Yes, yes. And they, they're great. I mean, especially teachers in school doing music and putting on school musicals and school operas and everything. That can be a great starter for a lot of kids and show them the way to go. And they're like, I really love doing this and everything. So, I mean, that's brilliant that, that you kind of got that, you know, kick to get you into gear. And and it, I'm sure it had an influence on a lot of stuff you did later, you know, and even now to this day, you could look back and say, I'm looking at the children of Lear and those traditions and putting them into my new work, you know? Uh, absolutely. And um, it's all thanks
1: to the, this teacher, you could say, the doc. And I was very grateful to him when I was a 14-year-old boy. And uh, there's a lot of people all over Cork came through that school and became musicians and, um, you know, sound engineers and uh, journalists. The doc. Turned on a lot of kids. Even Brendan O'Connor, now who's all over on the radio, he was one of the guys who was in the shows with the doc yeah. and was put on the stage by the doc, you know, and he's a well-known, like, journalist and broadcaster now and all that. So it's interesting what one, the effect that one person can have on a, a whole gang of kids. Yeah,
0: and it's, it's kind of like, it's like a, a rock, and a, a throwing a rock into a pool of water. Like, that one thing can kind of go out in multi directions and many directions and really influence everybody. So it's not surprising when you have a great teacher that you hear like people like yourself and Brendan O'Connor come from that same kind of uh, pool, you know? Absolutely. And uh, so happy it is, you know, and it, I think like it's just,
1: I feel very fortunate to have a path in life, yeah. you know, and with the songwriting and the music and it's, got, I've been making a living at it now for many years and, I mean, it is hair raising. It has been hair raising down the um, down the years. Which I'm, I'm 60 now. I haven't far to go. Yeah,
0: yeah, brilliant. And just just there, there talking about making a job of it. Uh, I see you used to work as a clerk in the Bank of Ireland. Was was that kind of one of your first jobs, or did you do many jobs before that?
1: Um, well, I, I, I did the leaving search when I was 17 and left school. And you know, um, I, I, um, my mother wanted me to go to college, but I didn't want to go to college because I was allergic to books and book learning in school. By the time I'd finished the Leaving Cert, no, I didn't want, never want to open another book. So, um, I didn't know what, well, I suppose it was too ambitious to think that I could be a musician. That wasn't really even a thing, you know, um, I did, I suppose, an interview for the ESB, for the Bank of Ireland, the AIB and the civil service. And that was the thing you did at those days, like if you were honours in the Leaving Cert, like you, and, um, I got a, when I was 17, I got a job, a full-time permanent pensionable job in the Bank of Ireland. So on my 18th birthday, um, I left home and went up to Limerick where I worked for two years in the Bank of Ireland, 125 O'Connell Street, uh, Limerick, which was my first time being away from home and earning money and it was a huge adventure. And I liked it. I mean, I loved all the people and I loved the bank and, I, you know, I loved the work. But I knew that if I didn't get out quick, I'd never get out. Right. Because when you get the car loan. yeah. When you get the car loan, it's going to be very hard to get out of it
0: then after that. that That's really, really, you know, a, a clever way of looking at it, because I see an awful lot of people when I was growing up, you know, and, and as I said there, I've been a bit of a nomad and moved around. But I remember talking to somebody who was 21 and they had like a mortgage on the house. And I said to them, would you like to travel? And he said, I'd love to travel, but I can't go anywhere now because I have the mortgage in the house. So... Some of these things we see as gains in life that, like, oh, it's great to have a house and a car. But sometimes they're traps, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe if he
1: got it when he was twenty-one, he could he he could be out of it but by the time he was thirty-six or yeah, seven, and maybe. then go travelling. You know. Yeah. But yeah, maybe. But I mean, well, I mean, the bank, there was nothing wrong with it, and the work was fine and all that. But I just knew that, you know, at the age of seventeen. My life was planned out and that at 65, I'd be returning from the Bank of Ireland. Yes. You know, with a pension and a house and all that. So my, my life was, I didn't like the idea of it all being already decided, you know, predestined. And so I thought like maybe, you know, life could be more of an adventure. Maybe I could go to Africa and be in the jungle with the lions. Or maybe I could go like and be, go on a boat to the Ant- Antarctica and catch fish or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some kind of idea. But the idea, the idea of nine to five at the age of 17, the idea of being nine to five for the rest of your life till you're 65 in a comfortable situation was not my idea of life, really. It was a bit of a shock. But of course, my mother was delighted because there was another, another one of the five boys ticked off,
0: like, yeah. you know, started. But, but I was going to say to you there, did, like, did you face some resistance when you were thinking of leaving the bank and, you know, going on your merry way to Antarctica or the jungle? Did you get people saying, you're mad, you can't do that, stick with the job? Absolutely. I
1: mean, I don't think I got one word of encouragement from anybody. And like, I swear to God, no, like I'm talking about 1981, yeah. like in Limerick in the bank. Yeah. And uh, like what happened, was happened was we had the, a rock band going, four of us, and we were dead serious about the rock band. And we, like, we, that was our passion, really. And even when I was in Limerick, I used to get the train down to Cork on a Wednesday and we used to play in Sir Henry's Hard Rock Cafe every mm. Wednesday night. I'd be up at the crack of dawn, get, trying to be being into the bank at nine o'clock the following morning, like on the train and hitching to Limerick. So um, what happened was myself and one of my buddies made a pact. He was working in high burning insurance. I was working in the Bank of Ireland. We would go full time. We would leave our jobs and go full time with the band. And we had a Ford Transit van and a PA system and we had a band. So we went full time and um, everyone thought we were mad. I mean, like my my mother like thought I was completely mad and she even got my Uncle Mossy in to talk to me. She got my Auntie Maggie, you know, from Drimal League, my godmother to talk to me. She was very distressed about it because <laughs> yeah. she saw it as a kind of a mental breakdown, yeah. really.
0: Oh, yeah. really, really? Okay, yeah.
1: And um, yeah, she saw, I mean, the, the idea of being a musician was not um, a thing. You know, I mean, I had no classical musical education. You know, I wasn't particularly brilliant at music or anything. You know, all I had was the... The want, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah, there was war. There was war, but I mean, like, um, it took about twenty five years later. She started to come around a small bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. She's
1: she she was she saw yeah. the light.
0: She saw the light.
1: Well, eventually, like when I started to be, I mean, it it took me a long time to get kind of known. Yeah. But when she was when she went up to the, the late late show, I was on the late late show, and she met Gay Byrne and all that. She started turning a small bit, then, all right. <laughs>
0: yes. Well, Gay could do that, couldn't he? Because he was like the high priest of entertainment, and if if your son or daughter was on the Late Late Show, then there was a chance they were doing something right. That's the crack, my boy. Wow. So so tell us, going back, just like obviously when you were fifteen, you started playing the guitar. You know, was there was there any kind of guitar player or performer as such that made you say, "I want to play guitar"?
1: Um. Um. Not in real life. I mean, I suppose with the rock musicals at school, there was guys came in, like Freddie White came in and other musicians came in who were Cork musicians mm. at the time that I saw, you know. So I was lucky enough to get that experience. But um, I did love the Beatles, you know. I love the Beatles songs and records. And when I learned, like, we never had any guitar lessons mm. or anything, but we picked up guitar off each other, like the fellas on the street. And at that time, it, um, Neil Young was all the rage. You had to be able to play the needle and the damage done.
0: Yes, yes. You know,
1: you had to have the the... the, the these little riffs and certain things, licks that would be passed around from from fella to fella, yes, and there were no girls, of course, no. and there was no girls in my family, and there was no girls in my primary school, and there was no girls in my secondary school, and girls were like people from a different planet altogether, like and um but um it was all so very much lads like and guitars and rock and roll bands and sir Henry's you know doing gigs and sir henry's and. It was a lot of shaping, a lot of rock and roll behavior, you know,
0: and um, that was the crack. Do you remember, like, when in your first gig, did you like do all covers, or did you throw in any original songs? Well, the band started off by playing covers, but we were
1: writing songs fairly straight away. And um, you're the band. After we went professional, we 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 tore each other, we tore we tore the band apart after about a year, maybe a year and a half, and. Uh, it didn't work out, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I would say one dominant person, one dominant person, we were unable to achieve a kind of an equilibrium of a power structure.
2: Yeah. You know what yeah.
1: I mean? Within the band, you know, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, a lot of bands have a band leader or they have an alpha male or they have, you know, but, um, but I was very much in favor of doing original material. I saw no, f- no future in doing covers. I mean, you do covers to learn your trade yeah. and to learn how to write songs. But I was, I was, I was, um, in favor of doing a uh, 100% original set. Uh, but other members of the band said, no, we'll do the covers. We'll make a few Bob. We'll do the cover gigs. And then when we have a few Bob made, we'll do our own stuff. And I said, no, if you don't do your own stuff
0: now, you will never do your own stuff. Yes. Like it's not something that you, it's not something that you put off. That's the thing, isn't it? With bands, you know, for, for some people, maybe they're destined to be solo performers and other people are destined to stay in bands because they need that support structure around them. But when you're in a band, it's pretty difficult because, as you said, there's usually an alpha. And the the thing about it is he could have great drive and ambition and could be doing really good things with the band and driving them. But then sometimes the other lads or girls, whatever, can have resentment because he's making decisions that they're not, but that maybe they wouldn't have made. so. It's a very tough thing. And there's a lot of egos in bands, isn't there? There's a lot of egos. And, uh, you know, I mean, it would be great if you could go back and uh, sort out the whole
1: situation, <laughs> but you can't go back. So, uh, you know, so that's the way it goes, you know. Yeah. And so
0: any band that sticks together has to be has to be admired. Yes. And, and I, I mean, even if you could go back, maybe it would go, well, if I change this now, I won't have the future that I had. So let's leave it alone. You know, <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's, you're dead right, Simon. Let's leave that. Let's leave that. Let's leave all those alternative universes alone. Yeah, and so when when it comes to songwriting, do you remember the first song that you wrote or do you remember where you were or what you were doing and you got like something new and you thought, this is a song, this is my own song?
1: Yeah, I do very clearly, you know, and um, I suppose I was learning guitar. I, I made up a few guitar pieces, you know, first, you know, like bits of guitar playing, you could call it. Mm. I had one called The Vestibule that I did at school. I had one called The Boulevard of Love. And then the first proper song that I wrote was a song called The Leaves Are Golden Brown. And um, we called it Golden Brown, actually, which was interesting because yeah. it, it was a big hit by the Stranglers exactly, a number yeah. of years later yeah. called Golden Brown. But my my Golden Brown, I remember very clearly. And um, uh, the leaves are golden brown as they tumble down. I could sing it grandly. Like, yeah. it, it was a nice little song, in. But it was a big moment for me. I'd say it was in probably, I was 16 or 17 like when I wrote it. And... Um, I fell in love with songwriting and um, it took me a long time to learn how to do it. You know, how to figure out a way to do it.
0: You know, when you started doing it, were you kind of, you know, being pushed in that direction like the Beatles or was it more like Irish folk? Did you feel like you had a style when you started writing your first few songs?
1: Uh, Interestingly, um, there was two different things going on. Uh, One was a kind of a rock band persona, you know and i i played electric bass like you know and it was kind of there was a rocker kind of a self but then after the the band after the gig you'd sit down and you'd play acoustic stuff you know and you might be like planksty or christy moore mm. irish ballads and it was it was a more gentler quieter acoustics you know and a more irish style and after a few years i dropped the rock and roll persona completely and um went totally for the irish acoustic folk you know a bit beatly alright like yeah. you know but um I went for that. I, that's the kind of persona that felt much true, truer to me because, you know, rock music is Americana, Yeah. you know, and it is, it does, it, it does require a certain kind of swagger and a certain kind of a, it's a, an American accent and a kind of a, you know, whereas the really gentle singing, I could sing a lot better if I sang really quietly. Yes. You know, and it's hard to, it's hard to sing with a rock band, you know, it's the racket was unbelievable.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and this is the thing, isn't it? Because I know myself, I was very influenced by rock and you know, in the 80s and everything. But then the other side of me loves the Irish kind of folk and Christy Moore and your own music and, you know, Jimmy McCarthy. I love all that kind of stuff as well. So it's amazing how those two sides can coexist. And you could be in a band playing Metallica or Guns N' Roses and then you pick up the guitar and you're doing like that kind of mellow Irish stuff. Or, and so it's amazing, isn't it? There's like two sides to every story and, and with music that can happen. And sometimes people discover, well, hold on. Maybe this is the side of me, the softer side. Maybe this is who I am. Well, that, that's,
1: that's the way it went for me. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned Jimmy McCarthy. Jimmy like, was huge in my life. Yeah. You know, Jimmy, like, was it, uh, when I was young, for in Cork at the age of 18, 19, Jimmy McCarthy was like seven years older than me and uh, he used to be playing with Declan Sinnott and I used to see him every Sunday night and he was writing incredible songs, which were, um, like they were, I don't know what you call them Irish folk songs even. I mean, they became Irish folk songs later, but they were more mainstream acoustic pop rock songs you could call them. But, um, I was um, fascinated by Jimmy McCarthy and very influenced by him. And, um, So I went on a kind of a mission and uh, I I sounded like Jimmy, you know, like, and a lot of us did at the time because I mean, the man was on fire. He was Mm. like really inspired and uh, he wrote very imaginative, creative songs. And there was a whole load of us who were younger than him, who who followed him, like, and sounded like him. And it took me a while to get out of that and get my own identity. And I got more into um, Irish trad, really, music and uh, also Irish language. And I found my own like voice eventually.
0: Yeah. And, the, with we were saying that with the Irish language, obviously, because I, I know you, you studied Irish and English in UCC. So, what, was the Irish language something you always spoke, or was it something you learned later when you went to university? Or um, I, I
1: I wasn't reared with it. I I learned it later, but I, I did have a kind of a grasp for it, like from primary school. Even really, I had a teacher in primary school that I had for two different years. who Was a very decent man who had a lot of a love for Irish. So I would have learned a lot of. Um, um, Irish in primary school from Michal Goggin. And then in secondary there's like Irish is kind of cat in secondary school, really, you know, there's yeah. a lot of, um, they don't talk it at all. Like, you know, and, uh, but I was sent to the, my mother sent me to the Gaelducht when I was 15 for a month and to Ballingerie. Now I know that it was mostly messing, but I mean, I actually learned a lot of Irish in Ballingerie, you know, there was, there was Irish lessons, you know, I did pick up a lot of Irish. So I did have a soft spot for it, but, but after I left the bank, Like my mother was freaking out and she said, um, like when I was a full-time musician, like at the age of 20, and she said, um, look, go to college and I'll pay for it. And, um, she said, you've plenty of time now, you know, to be doing your rock and roll, you could go to college as well. So, I mean, I was living at home, so I was on her territory really. And so I I went along with it, but I I went along with it on my own conditions that I went there. I did a, a bachelor of arts degree, but I did it in order to, to be a songwriter. You know, I did it to get, um, to use it to my own ends, yeah. which was to be a songwriter. So I did I, I did Irish, English, Latin, and philosophy. And I thought all those four things would be good for being a songwriter. And then I did Irish and English for my main subjects. And I thought the English would be good, but I, the English didn't agree with me at all in university. And I'll tell you why. Because when they teach English in universities, they don't um, they don't teach you anything to do with creative writing at all in any way. What they teach you is criticism. Right. It's actually a, it's a course in, in, in the criticism of, um, literature. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no creative writing of any kind or mention of it, even like in a, in a BA in English. The, in essence, really what they're, they're challenging everything. Well, what they're doing is they're criticizing everything. I was in the camp of the enemy. I'm, I'm trying to be a writer, yeah. but I'm, I'm being trained to be a critic. Right. You know, the writers and the critics don't go together. You know I mean? The writer is the person who makes stuff up. The critter is, the critic is the person that comes along and criticizes yes, it. Yes, yes. It's the camp of the enemy. I wow. swear to God, Simon, I was in the camp of the enemy in the English department, but I didn't know at the time why I felt so uncomfortable with the whole thing. But interestingly, the Irish department was different because you were learning a language. Um, I already knew the English language, like yeah. so you were learning a language. And also, there was a lot of trips to West Kerry, and there was a lot of, you know, drinking porter and fioghanoch Bally Ferriter Ball- 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 and Gunted Krugers and Doon Huin and a fabulous, yeah. you know, richness of language and culture. And also, I went out to the West Cork, I talked to um, Padre O'Riorda in in and Balivourne and Coulee, and I hung out there. There was a recording studio there in Balivourne, and uh, I got to go up to Coulee and meet. And, and the, the music down there is unbelievable, you know, the O'Riordas, the O'Sullivan's, the O'Linares, you know, Irla and all his yeah. family. and like a huge, huge richness of um, culture and songs and poetry and language.
0: So uh, the Irish was very creative. The English was cat. There you are now. You said it there, though, because I remember I went to the Christian Brothers in Tum, you know, because I, I was living in my my family, were living in Curfin and uh, in County Galway. And so we were in the Christian Brothers in Tum, I was. And I used to find with Irish that, The way it was taught, I never wanted to do it. And I was a messer at school and loved entertaining and being entertained. And the thing was, I remember being in Irish class and making up like songs and rap songs in Irish, very bad Irish. But that was kind of the way we dealt with it because we had no interest in what the teacher was teaching us or the syllabus. So I think the whole system of teaching Irish in schools you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, it was very bad. And I hope it's improved a lot now because kids, like, more kids would speak Irish in Ireland if we had a better educational system in Irish in the 90s and 80s and so on.
1: Yeah, well, you see, like, you're, you're opening a can of worms there, oh, because the Irish language in Irish, uh, in yeah. Ireland, sorry, the Irish language in Ireland is, like, in a, a bit of a terrible state. Mm. Um, but what it, what it, there's a bigger picture which what you're talking about is a post-colonial situation where people leave their own language. You know, I mean, you, even you said to kids in Spain they speak Spanish, mm. in Poland they speak Polish, in France they speak French, in England they speak English, in Ireland they speak Irish. No, mm. we don't speak our own language, and it like people changed over in the 19th century, and they didn't bring the Irish with them, and people are traumatized by it in a collective way. And you wouldn't believe the number of people say to me. I feel so ashamed that I can't speak uh, my own language. And I said to them, lose the shame. It's not your fault. You shouldn't be carrying no. that shame. So you get, a lot of, you get a lot of shame, but you also, you get a lot of people abusing the language and they're, they're down on the Irish language as if it's a bad language or it's a terrible language or if it's no good. And none of that is true because, I mean, of course, it's a beautiful language and it's one of the great literary languages of the world. You know what I mean? I mean, but it was baiting down. Yeah. No, I, I, I. Without going into an end, I'm not anti-English. Like no. you know what I mean. I'm not going into a patriotic rant, but it, it's just that the, the language was dis. Well, I suppose if I say the language was displaced by the language of the oppressor.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it, it was. Life. It was kind of dec, It was decimated in a way, and, and the thing about it is that's what I that's what I said to people here in Spain when they asked me. You know, they said, "Oh, do do, do you speak Irish?" or and I'd say, well, you know, like that, I'm sorry to say I don't speak Irish because by the time I realized I should learn to speak it, it was kind of too late for me. But you know, it's not something I've given up on because after learning Spanish living here and I learned a little French and stuff, I kinda always said to myself, you know, I'm like I'm forty seven now, but I think I think that I could learn Irish still. There's still a chance. You know, I mean
1: I I, I I I get I get a fierce kick out of it, you know. Yeah. I mean, but it does take a long time to get going. Like it's a bit like playing the guitar or any other skill, like or learning the saxophone or learning yes. French. I love French as well. Yes, you yes, know yes. I speak a bit of. You know, I love I love English and I love French and I love Irish. But it's a fabulous pastime to have in Ireland because for the likes of me, like as a songwriter, I mean, um, the Irish language is everywhere under the ground. Every place name is there. There's, there's history everywhere. There's mythology and folklore. It's not that far away. No, no, that's great. I mean, even you you were in tomb, like tomb actually means um, a tomb, doesn't it? Yeah. Some kind of a, like you were living, you, so like every place name in Irish has a, a richness and a,
0: whereas in English, it's kind of nonsense. Yes. And, and the thing about it is that, that, you know, like I think for adults now who are go back and relearn Irish or learn Irish. For them, they're discovering things about their country that they never knew. You know, that, that's that, that's the way it is. And you get actually get a, when you get into it, you get an Irish perspective, an Irish
1: language perspective of the country. Yes. Which is very interesting.
0: Yes. Brilliant.
1: And like, so, yeah, it's, it's very good for me because I'm writing songs and I'm, you know, exploring mythology, folklore, local history. Uh, so it's like Ireland to me is like a big, enormous board game. It's like a game of thrones. Yeah. It's like. You know, I'm writing songs about places up and down the country and linking stuff together.
0: Let's go back to to 1996 and your first album, Wells of the World. So you had been playing with other musicians and everything. You you obviously decided to go solo. And how did you go about recording that album? Like, was it something you said, "Okay, I'm going to put a lot of time into it or do it very quickly? Did you have all the songs written or how did what was the process?
1: Um, It was a long, complicated process, Simon Boy, and, uh, you know, I spent years playing with bands, and um, it took me a long time to get to, you know, the point of being solo. I mean, I was professional since I was 20, but I was 35 by the time I made that record. But I played with a band called the Stargazers through a lot of the 1990s, uh, 1980s, I suppose. I played with a band called um, Nomos in the 1990s. We were a really top-class Irish trad band that toured the world. And I left Nomos in 1997 and made my own record and the record was a very long complicated process. And the first record was called, um, the tree of stars and I got a record deal and, um, your man had no money and got, he left me down and it was war trying to pay for bills. And, uh, it was solicitors. And then I got another record deal with uh, another record company and, um, that was long and complicated process as well, and uh, then, Genie Mackers, I'd say I had the album done in 1993, but it came out at the end of 1997. So there was about four years like of carry on, you could call it like. But, I mean, I was playing with Nomus as well. You're a fierce old, you know, traumatic old stuff, really, like you know. And uh, then the album came out in 1997, and uh, it was had been recorded, re-recorded for the second time with Declan Sinnott as a producer. And uh, he was a top class musician and he, um, you know, brought it to a, a very professional level. And it was a long, long, slow, complicated process. And then it came out and it came out in 19, uh, September 1997, The Wells of the World, and uh, got went down a bomb. And I had Christy Moore raving about it. And uh, he was coming to my gigs and he was said, love what you're doing, John. Keep on doing what you're doing. Christy, like. Yeah. And he covered the first song on the record, Johnny Don't Go to Balancholyg. And then I had um, PJ Curtis on the radio playing it and raving about me and all this. But unfortunately, the record company itself didn't seem to have much mass on the record at all. And then there was a whole lot of, you know, very traumatic behavior. I was on the late, late h H&M show with Gabe the or he, re- he resigned in 1998. And uh, the big gig in Ireland at that time was one for everyone in the audience. Yes. He would hold up a CD and he'd say, there's one for everyone in the audience. No, the audience had about, I think, 200 people, I think, <laughs> maybe three, I can't remember now but you needed 200 CDs, right? Yeah. It could have been a CD or it could have been a book or it could have been a bar soap, but it was the big, it was the best marketing you could get in Ireland at that time yeah. And the, when Gay would say, and there's one for everyone in the audience. And that was like, you know, a fierce crack. But anyway, I was on there with my, my first record and I was singing my best song, All The Ways You Wonder," and I decked and it, the great guitar player, Maestro, with me and fabulous musicians. And uh, Gay Byrne was to um, hold up the CD, but there was no CD. It was out of print. All oh, right, like it was less than a year. Yeah, it was less than a year after its release. But you know, there was a long wrangling, and there was a long, you know, a lot of bad feeling and trauma, and there was no CD. You know what I mean? To hold up, and uh, you're a, The whole thing was, you know, very long, very complicated, and very traumatic. I have to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. But there well, you are. Know that happens a lot because, I mean, obviously musicians are musicians and so on, and engineers and producers. But once you start getting into the whole music business world, it becomes very messy. And like you said earlier, when you were young and nobody believing in you, sometimes even the music companies and the record companies don't believe in their own artists, whereas everyone else around them is telling them, this is brilliant stuff, but they don't see it. They don't see it sometimes, do they?
1: Yeah, it's it's very complicated, you know. But I mean, like, uh, I think that... um... You know, the model has changed a number of times since then, you know, and like I I'm an independent um art, artist now releasing this new record on my own label. And um but with the with the record I mean I was lucky to be involved with record companies at all. Mm. But I have to say, the whole model it seemed to involve a huge amount of disrespect towards musicians. Yes. I swear to God, that was my experience. And what it is is that you, you often you get people who work, it's a bit like people who were arts administrators, but don't respect artists. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, so record companies and a lot of the people in this scene, they would ultimately be making their living from the fact that there are people writing songs and making records and singing, but they would treat them with terrible disdain. Interesting, like, uh, you know, interesting situation.
0: Even now, when you look at it with, with in Ireland with the whole pub payment and how artists are treated during COVID and in the whole industry has been decimated by it, um, it's kind of, we always look back and musicians have always been like second rate citizens. It's like, ah, they're, it's a bit of crack, but should they be paid? And, you know, you go up and do a two hour gig, but nobody knows the amount of hours you've put into getting ready for it, learning the songs, you know, writing the songs. So the reward has never been, you know, justified And the thing is, I think with record companies and everything, they've always, it's been a bit like slave labor. They've had these artists working and, you know, putting their heart and soul into something and they are making the big books. And now if you look at Spotify, I mean, that's, it's gotten 10 times worse now because artists are making nothing on Spotify, you know? Yeah, it's fascinating. Carry on, isn't it? But I mean, what they call the music industry, I don't think it's an
1: industry, you know? I mean, there are no industry norms. There is no, like, there are no rules and regulations. There's no regulatory body, you know. I mean, for many years, what was called the, the the record industry was people who work in record shops and who work in record companies. You know, that was the music industry. Like the guys playing the gigs were that, you know. So, like, I don't think it's a proper industry. No, I think it's. No. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It it it, 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 might, it might generate it, it might generate. Like there might be a, a figure you can say it generates. You know, a hundred million for the Irish economy, but. I don't think it's an industry in the way that, you know, um, I don't know, name another industry, you know, the textile industry, the fishing industry. Um, So, I mean, there have been a number, I've seen a number of attempts in my life for, for example, musicians to take over the musicians union, which was a thing long ago. And, um, you know, each attempt has failed and been dissipated. Like there are no rules and regulations, you know, there are no um, industry norms, there are no wages. It's a kind of a free for all.
0: Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. Um, let, let's um, let's change tack a little. We'll we'll talk about you know obviously which are songwriting and Christy Moore coming to your gigs. So you you wrote one or two songs for Christy Moore then and other people as well. So was that kind of a natural process that once they heard your songs they wanted in, they wanted you to like you know write a song for them? Yeah,
1: well, uh, you know, I've never written a song for anyone really in mm-hmm. that way. You know, uh, like you know, I didn't write a song for Christy or whatever. I didn't write a song for, mm. you know, Pauline Scanlon or Karen Casey. Um what happens is that I just write my songs, whatever songs I can write, yeah. you know, and I'm grateful for them. And I make, I make records and then they cover them.
0: Yes. You know, right.
1: so, so, so people say you wrote a song for Christy. Well, I didn't, but Christy, you know, recorded five of my songs and we co-wrote one song together. But I mean, the buzz I got off Christy, bates all. And that buzz that I still get off Christy, bates all. I mean, like, I was rare in Christie, like from the Planksty album when I was nine or 10 years yeah. old, you know. You know, Oh, The Rivers Run Free and Sweet Thames Is Flow Softly and The Raggle Taggle Gypsy and all those songs. You know, I, I loved all the Planksty records. Um, I loved Moving Hearts were the best band I ever saw in my life. Yeah. Live, you know, I was totally blown away by Christie and he, um, I made my first demo in 1986 on a cassette. It was called John Spillane Eight Songs and I sent it to everyone all the singers and all the record companies and festivals and I only got one reply and that was from Christy Moore who said you're a beautiful singer keep it going nothing suitable from my repertoire at the moment
0: yes yeah
1: that was Christy that was brilliant that was way back in 1986 unbelievable and then he came on board coming to the gigs and he recorded Johnny Don't Go to Ballin College and then he recorded Magic Nights in the Lobby Bar he did a beautiful job on a song I have called Gerta Toggart about the farm and Bantry and the names of the fields wow so and he did a then he did a ballad of Patrick Murphy, a local historical ballad here, and um, then we wrote a song together. But then his last album is named after one of my songs. It's called Magic Nights, and it's after this song called Magic Nights in the Lobby Bar. It's the title track and the first track on Christy Moore's last album, which was a live album, or maybe second last. I think he brought it recently. He had um, his very early work was re-reissued. Re- um, yes, but. Um, so, um, ah, Christy, was, Christy's been unbelievable to me. Like you know, he rings me up, Simon, and um, he talks to me, and he tickles my belly like a puppy dog, <laughs> and I go into a paroxysm of ecstasy. <laughs> he has a huge effect. <laughs> a paroxysm of ecstasy, and I say, I'll well, die happy now. Yeah. And he goes, Jesus, Johnny said I sang. He said I sang your song last night in fricking Mullingar. He'd say the Ballad of Patrick Murphy.
0: What a song! And I go, Oh my God, am I dreaming? That's brilliant. You know what I mean? That's really good man. Oh, Yeah, Unbelievable. And I, well, I, I mean, he's given credit where credit's due, you know, because even though you still look at him as your kind of idol and someone who, you, who influenced you greatly, you know, the wheel has turned a little and now he looks at you in the same light. So he's kind of thinking, wow, what a great songwriter and it's a pleasure to sing his song. So I think that's a great achievement. Oh, unbelievable, man. I, I, I could die happy now. And then he went around saying, John Spillane has
1: been my favourite. I could nearly do his voice. John Spillane has been my favourite songwriter for the past 10 years.
0: And I go, oh my God, my writing is so together. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I was going to say, maybe you'll play a song first, you know, um, we'll, kind of from your vast repertoire. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, I suppose I'll do one from the new
1: record. Okay. And, um, and I'll, do, um, I'll do my personal favourite. Well, I, I'm very happy with the new record. Um, the new record, um, it's out on the April the 2nd. And um, I think there's, there's four songs in it that are as good as anything I've done. If you, you know what I mean? In my top ten, you could say. And this is one of them. It's called um, Under That Old Clear Moon.
2: When I was a singer, I had only one song. That I wove from the sunlight and I rambling along I tied it with brushes and I freed it with air And it swept me along to the old County Clare It went meet me tonight by moonlight Under that old Clare moon I chanted in Doolin' and I sang at Fenor. I went rattling and clattering on the old flaggy shore. Where the cliffs at Kilkey they challenged the sea. And I sang like a thrush in the town of Kilrush. I sang Meet Me Tonight by moonlight under that old clear. ships They went down The moon she rose up With her great starry crown Her necklace of diamonds Her white wedding gown And she shed salty tears For the sailors who drowned She sang Meet me tonight By moonlight Under that old A wonderful promise The old county clear There are melodies Hanging from shelves in the air There's the maid at the barrows The hag at the churn There's a great flock of Just flying over the border Singing, meet me tonight by moon Under that old clear moon Meet me tonight by moonlight
0: Under that old clear moon You had a bit of accompaniment there. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't worry, that's perfect. I mean, it, 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 this is life. I love these bit moments and mobile phones are all parts of it. For God's sake. Don't worry, don't a worry. missed call from a Dublin number. <laughs> Probably the lottery. Probably the lottery ringing you to give you the money. I was listening to the album the other day and, and uh, I was looking, I was saying uh, the two songs, I think uh, that's a really nice song, but I think my two favourites are the, the Billy in the Sky and Molly Bourne. I like those songs. Very nice. Uh, great. Uh, that's fabulous. Uh, thanks yeah. so
1: much, Simon. I'm delighted
0: with that. Yeah, novel. I liked, and and Billy in the Sky. It, it, like it was, I wasn't expecting it. You know, it, it the way it comes in, and then obviously it has a lovely beat behind it, and Pauline's voice and everything. But it's a very unusual song, and and I, you know, I was listening. I was thinking, wow, this could be like a big hit. This song, you know, um, and and Molly Bourne's lovely, lovely lyrics and everything. I mean, they're all lovely lyrics. But, and, and uh, what's the other one, mm. the Bally for Land? I like that one as well. Oh, so much. Thanks so much. I delivered that, Simon. Yeah, very yeah, nice. Well,
1: they're all um, songs that were written for people and places that, you know, in, in my, my carry-on as being the bard. Yes. You know what I mean? Each song has a whole story behind it, like uh, about interaction with people and places. But um, Billy in the Sky has two levels of a song. One is for, it's written in gratitude to a helicopter pilot called Billy, Billy Doyle. Who brought me up in his helicopter twice to bring me to a gig oh. out to islands, out to Inish We went and we went out to Inish Moor uh, in a helicopter, and then we went to Clare Island on a helicopter. And I, I said, How can I ever repay you, Billy? I'll write you a song. So it's for a helicopter pilot, Billy in the Sky. And uh, but on another level, my father was called Billy, who died when I was one and a half, and I, he, he has a certain background. Uh, you know, presence in my life in a kind of an imaginative way. Right. Wow. Like Billy Spillane. Wow. So so I have, that,
0: I have that going as a secondary level. Wow. Uh, yeah, because it's really nice. And, and I mean, of course, it's great for Billy Doyle if you're listening. And wow, it's a lovely song. And But it's nice because, as you said, you've kind of wrapped up a, a special kind of thank you and a hello to your dad as well in one song. So it's really cool. Yeah, we love and the more levels that are going on add to the richness of the cake. Yes. You know,
1: when you're doing the baking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that's the thing with songs, isn't it? It's great that somebody can say to you, is that song about this? And you go, it's not, but it could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always that. Yeah. You know, yeah. because everyone takes their own interpretations yeah. from songs. And, you know, when when the when when the Beatles were singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you know, what were they really singing about? But the whole point is, that's the beauty of songwriting, isn't it? That everybody takes their own version and their own interpretation of that song.
1: Yeah, and didn't uh, John and I always deny that it was about LSD, yes.
0: even though it sounds like LSD? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, so there you are, who knows? crazy. So, yeah. so obviously, with the, with the new album, you know, you recorded in London with John Reynolds, and, and you had, you know, the wonderful Pauline Scanlon on the album, and she's worked with you a lot. Before we talk about the album, let's talk about working with Pauline. You know, you've done a few albums with her and, you know, so how did that come about? Um, Okay, so um, Pauline came
1: to Cork and she, there's a kind of a rock school in Cork, you know, there's Bally Permit in Dublin Mm. that a lot of people went to, like Damien Dempsey and all them came through it. And there's one in Cork then called um, Stefan Neafa. And I think Pauline was a student there learning music and management when I was brought in to give a talk, you know, about songwriting. And that's, I think that's where we met first, but on her first, um, record. Well, first of all, when she sang with Sharon Shannon's band and um, Pauline recorded a song called of mine called All The Ways You Wander on one of Sharon's albums, an album called Libertango, which was a, one of, yeah. you know, an excellent album and a beautiful, beautiful version of my song sung by Pauline. And, uh, it was fabulous. And uh, then she went and made her first solo album and she recorded a different version of, of All The Ways You Wander in London with John Reynolds. So that was my introduction to John Reynolds. And Pauline, like, has been singing my songs from a very early time. And she's from Dingle, but she always seemed to really get me. Yes. I mean, the way it is, like, with me, with the songs, like, I've been writing, I'm 60 now, and I've been writing songs since I was 16, like, but my songs were often a little bit odd. They were a bit individual, um, you know, poetic. They didn't always fall, like... Um, there weren't songs that were, you would see would be covered by people yes you know there weren't obvious songs be covered and I just I thought that I wouldn't get any cover versions now in the Cork that I grew up with um, like with Jimmy McCarthy you know for example who was a, an idol of mine Noel Brazil who was a great songwriter around Cork at that time all the age was getting covered you know what I mean mm-hmm. like Mary Black covered a lot of people's songs at one time Mar O'Connell covered a lot of people's songs Freddie White covered songs Christy Moore covered songs songwriters were looking for covers yeah but i wasn't getting any covers right you know what i mean and i thought that i thought that my stuff was too queer you know but eventually when it did happen pauline was one of the first and then of course christy came in and like he was you know christy moore is very big like so um, i eventually got a, a lot of covers from um very folk i have a great list of women who have covered my my songs in gaelic gaelic names of women and murder nick Nell Ní Chrónín, Máyra Ní Wow. In my three, um, uh, so, um, so that's how I met Pauline and, uh, she loved All The Ways You Wander and it was her, you know, her big song. And then I went over to London to make my own record and, you know, um, she did the backing vocals, um, on an album called Hey Dreamer 2005 and then she, she's been singing with me on and off, you know, and we've toured Australia together and, um, She's all over this new record now. And it's like me and John and Pauline, um, you know, back in London, back together after a gap of 10 years doing my songs. And uh, Pauline is multi-layered on this record. And um, it, it, this record came out so good that John said, we should give it a, sec- a, a separate name, you know, a kind of a project name. So we call it John Spillane's Lapwing Nation, 100 Snow White Horses. So... Here's Crack and um, it's going so well. Now I'm really, really happy with the way it's going.
0: Where did the name Lapwing Nation? What? Tell
1: us about that. Okay, so we were over in London and uh, John suggested a project name, you know, because, I mean, the last few records I brought out myself seem to go a bit under the radar. You know, there were one called um, Life in an Irish Town and an album called The Man Who Came in from the Dark. So he said, you know, maybe we should make it into more of a thing by, you know, calling it John Spillane's Something Something. Yeah. Like the band title or a project so uh, we went into a pub in london anyway and john was saying i think um you know like a, a, like a word like um a group um you know nation republic you know tribe some word like that is good for this kind of a thing and uh we made up a list of words and somebody came up with lapwing nation i, I think it was pauline i can't remember yeah. but uh but it was mysterious But um, Lapwing Nation is just really, I suppose, to sound arty and uh, mysterious. But I got into the Lapwing then, you know, I love the mythology. And um, I was working um, in the Glens of Antrim Storytelling Festival with a a great friend of mine who's a Welsh storyteller called Daniel Morden. And I said, we're going to call the project um, John Spillane's Lapwing Nation. And he said, oh, my God, I love the Lapwing. He said, you know, he said that um, um, Daedalus, you know, like, the father of Icarus, who made the wings that Icarus perished on when he flew to... Daedalus was the greatest inventor of the ancient world, he said, but he wasn't. He was only the greatest inventor of the ancient world because he murdered his own brother, (laughs) um, Talos. And um, he, he murdered his own brother who was actually the greatest inventor of the ancient world and Talos invented the saw. He invented it out of the jawbone of a dead dog, the saw. That's where the saw came from. But Daedalus cruelly murdered his own brother because of, of, in a jealous rage, because he was the greatest inventor, and Pallas um, got turned into a, a lapwing. And that's where the lapwing comes from. It's a bird that lives in the river flats and the river inlets and the sandy banks. And what they say about the lapwing is, a, when it's up, it's down, and when it's down, it's up. Wow. and This refers to the coxcomb on top of his head. When in flight, it lies down, but when it's landed, landed when it's landed on the ground, it, it shoots up. The um, is a coxcomb is the word. The comb on top of yes, the lapwing's yes, head. Yes. Then. So, see, so I'm like that, I'm on mythology. Then um, Robert Graves had a big thing about the Lapwing, and James Joyce had a fascination with the Lapwing. And uh, the Lapwing is a bird that, it, it, it takes you on a false path. If, it, if a hunter comes near, or what, what it perceives to be a predator, comes near its nesting ground, it makes a big racket, and it leads you away from the nest. Oh Yeah, so so it's a false trail. It's an interesting bird, no? It's an interesting bird, and so you know, it's just one of these things that's made up in a pub in London, but then you get into the whole vibe of it.
0: Yeah, well, of course, I mean, and and even in moments like this, when it's great to know the mythology of it and everything, it's really cool. And and you know, I, I think that's a great idea as well, having a project name because you know, when you move on to your next project, then it gives it a different feel, and it's like. A new book, nearly, no? That kind of a thing, yeah, yeah. But I mean,
1: this is a sweet album. I mean, as I said earlier, it's a great way for me to celebrate turning 60 by bringing out this record because like, I mean, it does sound so good. I mean, Pauline is so good on it. You know, the songs are good. John put his heart and soul into it. So I'm I'm extremely I'm extremely proud of it, Simon.
0: i listening to it, it. It has a lovely atmospheric sound, and and I mean, it has a sound that kind of draws you in. And and between your own voice and Pauline's voice and the music and everything, it's really nice. And I I think it's going to do well. You know, it's um I I think you know the first song obviously that that I got turned on to you by was the Dance of the Cherry Tree. That song, a f- magnificent song. And I remember that. I don't know how many years ago hearing that song, and I thought. That's fabulous! It's just so poetic and no. ah, thank you. I, I, I mean, yeah. but I, I sincerely mean that now because I, I always remember that song, um, and it's it's one of those songs that kind of sticks with you. So I think I think in this new album you will probably have some similar songs as well. Where for different people there'll be different songs, but it's very it's it's a very atmospheric album, you know. Thank you so much, Simon. I'm so pleased with it. Yeah, the cherry trees is a great crack, man.
1: I mean um actually the the dance of the cherry tree song came out in 2002 but um it never got so much airplay as it got last year in 2020 because um everybody was in lockdown in March to hope they shut down yeah. everybody was slightly traumatized everybody was traumatized at the start you know especially people who lost all their income yeah you know there was a there was a there was a, a terrible shock and then the cherry blossoms came out yeah. um in April And everybody, everybody was in lockdown and everybody saw them, you know. It was a huge return to nature, to bird watching and to, everybody became suddenly aware of the um, cherry blossom trees. And the amount of airplay it got last year was ridiculous.
0: Wow. You
1: know, I've got a, I've a friend there, John, John Arnold, and he's a farmer and a journalist, but he's a radio addict. And he'd be ringing me up and giving me a text. He said, he said, I heard it 12 times in the last two weeks. Wow. The dance of the cherry trees in 2020 in Ireland. Wow! So, um, it seemed to, it seemed because the chorus is well done. Everyone, well done. Yeah. Um, we've travelled all around the sun. Well done.
0: Um, that seemed to resonate last year. And and that's great, isn't it? That a song can have a second resurgence, and you know, like it, it comes back at a at a pivotal time when people need a song like that. And you know, you you sometimes people write songs and they can lie in a treasure chest of songs for years, and then one day they come out at the right moment and Even though Dance of the Cherry Tree was out in 2002, maybe this right now was the perfect moment for it. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating. Carry on. And uh, I'm I'm having a ball. I'm having a ball with the songwriting, Simon, like as you can see. That's really good. And so, you know, obviously with the recording, um, was it for, for the new album, was it a long process or? You know, did things come together very quickly? Did you record a lot of songs live? And, you know, tell us a bit about the process. Certainly. Well, um, I met John Reynolds in Dublin.
1: And, um, you know, I, I put it to him, you know, would we be interested in going back to London to record? And I gave him I, I gave him a collection of 23 songs that I had done. You know, some of them were quite short and they were of all different styles. And I had 23 songs, you could say, that were unrecorded, you know, of various types of song. And uh, John picked out 12. He put a little heart next to 12. And uh, he didn't pick the ones I thought he would pick at all. You know, in some cases, he picked ones which I thought would not have made it onto the record at all, mm. including Billy in the Sky, which I, which I thought was way too, you know, out there. And he said, there'd be no record about Billy in the Sky. <laughs> so, like, when I work, yeah. so like when I work with John, I give him the ball. You yeah. know what I mean? I give him the choice of the songs. And, uh, you know, I love the two. I, I love teamwork. And I love giving somebody the ball. I don't give it to them, and then you know, be putting my oar in. So, um, so he picked twelve songs, and he picked a Billy in the Sky, which I was very surprised. You know, I wouldn't. It wasn't very formed at the time, and he he has actually brought that song on hugely. You know, in the, yeah. in the production, and he picked one called One Hundred Snow White Horses, yeah. which I thought would not have made it onto the record either because it's about six and a half minutes long, and it's all about the history of County Leash. You know, it's a very particular yeah type of song. And um, not not commercial at all, like, yeah. you know, but um, but but he went for that big time as well. But when he went for that, then that actually made made it possible for me to call the album Hundred Snow White Horses," and everybody loves the title.
0: Yeah, great name. So,
1: you know, um, yeah, thanks so much. So, so then I went to London. I went there for a week, and I had all the songs very finished before I go there. Like I'm not into this crack about um writing songs in the studio at all. Or I, I don't wait for any inspiration to come down. To me like from some unknown source mm. you know what i mean like when the clock is ticking on the wall like i don't put myself under that pressure yeah simon i have all my work done so i i go with like i went over there with like you know finished songs and then the process then is um i went over and pauline went over and uh I, I love i love well john is a very big-hearted lovely man you know and a good friend of mine and um i would put down um i would put down the song um to a click you know, to a metro room, mm. um, I would put down a, a rough version first, and then I would replace the rough version with a, a separate guitar. would do the guitar separate. Sometimes I would double track the guitar, um, and then I would do a vocal. And with John, it's all about this magical microphone that he has, this big old Newman valve mm. microphone that we adore. And uh, so I would put I, I'd say I'd put down all the twelve songs like in in those seven days, and um with guitar and vocal. Finished, you know, and um uh, with John as well, there's a big lot of positivity and it's kind of first take, really. It's first yeah. go. It might be second go, like, but it wouldn't be like endless goes like or you know, it's all about like just going for it and doing it and everything is wonderful. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a it's a state of mind, of yeah. positivity. And then I also put so I put down a keyboard and on all on all the twelve tracks as well. I, I said I had guitar, keyboard, and um vocal finished in one week for the whole album. And um, the keyboard, the kind of keyboard player that John likes is a keyboard player or a piano player with one hand tied behind his back and two fingers cut off. Oh, wow. So it's just simple. Yeah. It's just a very minimal yeah, keyboard um, deliver- delivery of a chord, you know, and that goes through the whole album. And people are saying to me, is that a harp? And I said, no, it's actually a Spanish guitar, but there is a keyboard behind it. More like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just three notes. Yeah. and But that pattern goes through. It, under the guitar and it just gives it a a kind of a harp like slightly percussive tone and uh then pauline was you know very creative and um like she she loves um uh you know she loves my songs and she loves doing harmonies and um i suppose the three of us had a ball really for for seven days doing what we love best yeah and then i went back over oh then i I wrote wrote the old claire moon okay and i said oh my god that should that should be on the record. That's better, you know, than yeah. some of the stuff that's on it. So I went back over to John. I said, "Look, I have a new one that's better." So I went over for a few days, and we did a bit of work on the record. And um John brings in a few p- players, and Claire Kenny on the bass, like most beautiful bla- bass player, you know, like lovely bass lines. And um yeah, we I think maybe two or three trips to to London, like, but I
0: mean, like, we'd go for a pint and after, and all yeah, that kind of yeah. crap. Like, we wouldn't be like slaving, yeah. And, w- and would you find that you'd work a lot during the day or at night, or what was kind of the routine? Well, the routine
1: in London, in London was you get up in the morning and go for a big walk in Hyde Park with the dogs, and then go, go into the studio, maybe have a big breakfast, and go into the studio maybe around noon and work away then, you know, until about maybe six or seven o'clock in the day or that kind of way, and uh, have a feed of grub and maybe a few few points, and maybe go back in at night and do a bit of work or not you know yeah but um but lovely but john would be chopping away then on his own when i wouldn't be there as well like he'd be like moving stuff around and you know making everything sound sweet and working there'd be a lot of engineering work done then
0: going back to billy in the sky because it has that kind of dance beat behind it that it's a lovely beat behind it is that something then that you know someone john says to you we should put this beat behind it or you know, and would you be kind of going? Oh, is that my style, or do you know how how does that kind of thing come about? Do you do you? Is it something that you embrace, or you're kind of struggling with these ideas then? Well, I don't
1: struggle with any of those ideas. You know, I mean, I, I give John the ball, and I'm always amazed and delighted with, with what he comes up with. And with Billy in the sky, um, the chorus, you know, is the same as what I had it, but I had I had a different verse structure. And John said, he said there'd be no record without. Billy in the sky, he went for it big time, and he's done this to me in the past as well. He likes to go for the oddest things mm. that I do, you know, and he finds them very attractive, but he suggested um not doing the verses I had at all. I had like two short verses you know about helicopters and stuff. He said spoken word yeah. he said, you know what i what, what I want you to do is like some morning you know when your voice is really low and gravelly, to go really close to the mic and do some spoken word, and you know then you know he suggested. So um, I, I, I tried a few different, I made up a load of different um, styles of spoken word and I was going for the kind of detective voice. Yeah. It was 3.45am when I entered the building. You know, it was dark outside. Uh, one low, cro- you know, it's kind of talk. Yeah, it's, G- it's a Jimmy tone, Cagney you know. Kind of. <laughs> Jimmy, exactly. I was going for the Jimmy Cagney and I, Mickey Spillane. Yeah, you Mickey Spillane. He's a cousin of yours. Yeah. <laughs> Mickey Spillane, of course, he, he has to be with a name like that, and uh, and uh, Mickey Spillane, and uh, you know, like it was forty, you know, the night was the darkness was falling, you know, at the end of the street. So in the end, I made up these, you know, um, verses of spoken word, which I spoke in a kind of my own accent, in a, as deep as I could go, and uh, the the whole the, the track took on a whole personality of its own, you know. Yeah. It- so I mean, I mean we have a single out at the moment and we'll be, we'll be looking for a second single. And maybe Billy in the Sky"
0: might be a good idea to release as a single. You know, who knows? You, ne- you never know. It struck me, though. I mean, I-, I was surprised by it and I thought, this is really cool. You know, it's very different and very nice. So, But like that, someone else could listen and go, oh, no, I'm not into that one. I like the other one more. But, but that's the whole beauty, isn't it, of listeners. I mean, they can have different tastes and different styles. So listen, um, one thing I want to touch on, which I thought was a great idea, was the funding for the album. I was reading about your, the, the, the modern day Bard and, you know, the songwriting and stuff. Was, was that something that took off or, you know, because obviously nowadays with crowdfunding and everything, was it hard to get funding for the album?
1: Um, well, we, 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 we ran a very successful funded campaign, you know. And Pauline Scanlon had done one uh, about two or three years previously for her last album, which was called Gossamer. Mm. And she had found that the funded campaign went very well for her. And she said that it built a community around the record, mm. you know, that, you know, that it, it went very well. So she recommended it. So it was on Pauline's advice that I ran a funded campaign. And um, a lot of the songs were written for specific, like, festivals. I mean, you know, like, say, for example, Molly Bon, it's about Clanmel. It's about the busking festival yeah. in Clanmel. The Carolyn song is about the gigs I did in Mo Hill for Carolyn. Billy, Billy in Disguise is written for the helicopter yeah. pilot. All the songs had to do... None of them are about me, like they're all written in, in gratitude or in, you know, in, in a in a conversation or in a, a relationship with people outside myself. Yeah. So this is what I call the Bardic, you know, um, the Bardic model, you know, and um, I'm interested, to like I was reading that like, you know, you know what makes Ireland different from every other country? What? You like this now. What what makes Ireland, you know, this is Robert Graves. Now he's a friend of mine. He, he's an English poet, you know, deceased. Yeah. He wrote a lot of great books uh, about mythology, especially a big scholar and poet. But he says, what makes Ireland different from every other country in the world is we had bardic schools of poetry here from the year, um, from around, you know, the 12th century to the 17th century, professional, a whole cast of professional poets. Wow. You know, attached to the Gaelic aristocracy. And that's one thing that makes us different. It makes us a very poetic nation in terms of music and poetry, that the reverence is built into the society in a kind of a, it was, you know what I mean? In a kind of a structure. Yeah. You know, no other country had the schools and these professional cast of poets, the old Daleks and all these guys. But anyway, he said, the other thing that marks us different is that we have a reverence, the goddess, um Christianity never really fully replaced the, the previous um, pagan religion in Ireland. That's why our big reverence to the um the Virgin Mary, Holy Mary, where you see statues of her, of her all over the country, that's not Holy Mary at all. That's the previous goddess. Well, Holy Mary used the previous goddess anyway. Yeah. But that's like um that's um Danu, that's Era, that's um Isis, that's
0: the the white goddess that graves us. So we have the goddess, the moving statues and all that, like. That's you you you're right in that sense because I was reading a book once and they were saying that the the name Mary comes from a pagan uh, god, uh, uh, like a, f- a female deity, and her name was Mary, like M-E-R-Y. So it, the thing about it is a lot of Christianity is the ideas are stolen from other religions, and it's a way of blending the old religions into the new one and kind of pushing people in the door of the new religion. Well, absolutely. I mean, it,
1: every aspect of the Christian religion, like, is based on previous yes. um, mythologies. Every bit of it. Yeah, you know, there's no bit that isn't. No, no, no. You know, so um, yeah. that's brilliant. So, um, so that's 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 the thing about
0: the Bardic crack. So, um, wow. Uh, so I, I, I'm into all that, like. So, yeah, you know, with obviously you did like your your you know you've done some TV shows, and I want to talk about one or two of them there for in a second. Uh but but your books as well. I mean your your books and the the Will We Be Brilliant or What and so on, are are they something that you fell into easily or you had an idea to do those kind of things for a long time? Um
1: Well, I think that I was doing my own thing with, with being the singer songwriter and uh, trying to be real and cork and local and you know, Irish. You know, it's a lot of it is kind of identity, really, like, you know. Um but um people have come on board and and like uh, I was approached by a, a television company who, here in Cork, wonderful, wonderful company, and uh, they basically took what I was doing anyway, and they packaged it in a certain way for TG4 or our Gaelic TV channel. And I did two years of a series called "Spellan on Fawney, which means "Spellan the Wanderer," where I went around from town to town doing gigs and writing songs. And I wrote a song about thirteen um, Irish towns. And um, they um, so they took what I did, and they, as I say. Controllers and you know, put it through the machine, and uh, so that was very much bardic in that you go to a town, you work in the town, and you write a song about the town, and you earn your keep in that way. And then uh, I've had fabulous times with with TG Catter and the Irish language has been extremely good to me, you know. And um, then the book I was approached by the Collins Press, like Con Collins of the Collins Press, a very respectable Irish publisher, Cork publisher company. No, no more actually. But um, Khan says you should write a book. So like, that's how I work. I work with, like I work in partnership with other people, mm-hmm. Simon. And it took me about ten years to deliver the book to Con. Like, but the the book is a book of lyrics of uh, I think about sixty five of my songs and um, the background story of the song. And it was very it was very well received. It was a book that I brought out in twenty sixteen, and it wasn't widely promoted or anything. But it, you know,
0: they, they tip away the book. And uh, it's been warmly received, tell us. And you did a show as well, the Spillane in Africa in two thousand and seven. That's I'm I'm sure that had a big impact on you. Going over there, seeing the, their culture, and you know how how they even approach songwriting and music and singing. No,
1: absolutely. And again, um, this was uh, to do with the bards because like the bardic like, tradition in Ireland, like which you you could say finished in the seventeenth century. You know, at the time of the elizabethan conquest and the cromwellian conquest and the end of the gaelic order at that time like mm. in the 17th century um um it's still alive in west africa and uh in like so so in, in large areas of west africa you've got a culture that is um you know native african obviously but a lot of them then are french speaking as well because they were colonized by the french and a lot of them then it's very islamic as well because that's the you know religion which colonized a lot of Mm. North and West Africa like a long, long time ago. So um, I spoke to people over there and I spoke to one musician who said, well, I feel I have three identities, one which is Native African, one which is Islamic, which is kind of Arabic, you could say, you know, um, even though they're West Africa, they feel related through through Islam to the Arabic world. And the other then is a French, you know, in the same way as we have an English-speaking culture, they have a French-speaking culture. But anyway, the bards of West Africa are alive and well, and they're called the griots, G-R-I-O-T, griot, griot. And it comes down to family. So there's a caste society. So if your father is a fisherman, you become a fisherman. If your father is a f- farmer, you're a farmer. If your father is a griot, you become a griot. But you can't become if you're born to a fisherman family. Do you get me?
0: Right, right.
1: So this happens to the... In, this, like I was in Senegal, and in present-day Senegal, the people who are in the Griot families um, are television presenters, singers, entertainers, storytellers, and that's all. If you don't come for the family, you can't do it. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, like, and that's the way it was in Ireland, like in the in the time of the Gaelic Order, for example. The O'Daligs were poets, and like that was for, handed down from father to son, um, in a male line, like. And um, then that's still the way in West Africa. And I was um singing with I was jamming with a, a musician called Baba Mal, who's like a guy I was well aware of before I went over yeah, there. Yeah. And he's well
2: known.
1: He's, ah, well, he, well known and like a, a famous figure in um, you know, Womad and all that kind of Peter Gabriel world music scene. Yeah. And um Baba Mal. But Baba um he was not born a griot, so he couldn't be a singer, right? But as he said to me, but my my voice was there for all to hear. But um Anyway, he's a big star in African music, but what he did was he he got a way around the, the caste system by um, becoming a guide to a blind musician called Mansoor Sek, brilliant guitar player. And I like, I got I got to jam with these guys out in the desert. Like it was like it was very uplifting. And um, so, because he became a guide to Mansoor Sek, that was a way of getting past the system. Uh, he could be his he could be his guide because he was blind, but he could also learn an apprenticeship in that way. And uh, that's how he was allowed to do it, but um, otherwise he would not have been allowed. But that—that that is the system. You can't do what you want, like you know what I mean. You can't be what you want. This individualism, yeah, very rigid, isn't it? Very rigid and very ancient and biblical, almost. You know, the society I, I found. I mean, I only went there for a couple of weeks, like, but um, but that was Baba Mal. And uh, but the thing about um, you know, his attitude towards music was, he said, um, we love to hear your Irish traditional music. He said. It's like a child that left Africa so long ago and has developed into its own, has flowered and blossomed. And I say, "Oh, my child, welcome home! Look how, how look how you have grown!" Wow! I think they own music, man. They think they own music. And the griots, you know, you know, they, so they're attached to a royal family, or they, they write songs about occasions. But there's a lot of extemporary making up of songs, you know, like like I like what I'm doing, my songwriting. I mean, in a freer way, there's a lot of you could call it rapping, you could call mm. it poetry, you could call it, you know, um, lyric composition, but there's a lot of um, description of events and, you know, talk and uh, fascinating tradition. No, I didn't know enough of the language like to, you know, to really get to the bottom of it. Like yeah. you know, I, yeah. I just scratched the surface, but there's a lot of that. But there's also like a huge, like, interestingly, superiority and um, complex yeah. ab- among the African people towards music. They own it. Yeah. They feel, and you can see the rhythm is in them and the sun is in them. And any, I did, um, I did a lot of Gaelic songs over there for the crack, yeah. various musicians and singers. And like, I did ban you know, like, oh, she ain't true here, Nachmisha, nachmisha, Shane she ain't true here, nachmisha ban ban Foddy, right? Yeah. Like, and they said, oh, that's what you're calling, that's freaking wanga, wanga, wanga. And they started <laughs> singing away straight away. And, and so, I did Peggy, I did Peggy more and they'd say, oh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Oh, sure think They had a, everything I sang. They claimed that they had as well. Right. But I mean, I think what swear to God, but I swear they were what they were talking about was a vast repertoire of music and melodies.
2: Yeah. That
1: they they, they were pulling from.
0: Wow. And any every tune that I they, they nailed it. Yeah, it's interesting though because obviously you know when when they look back and they say we're all from Africa and music probably came from Africa too, so. probably running parallel for all these years, we've been doing Irish ballads and people have been singing around the hearth and the fireplace and they've been singing and making up songs in a similar style. So I'm sure there's so many coincidental songs that, you know, the melodies are so similar, no? I suppose so. I mean, uh, you know, I think a bit of it was like completely
1: genuine. And a bit of it was a bit of Blarney and Plow as well for 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 for, for the visitors, you know?
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Wow. Yeah, but... But fairly fa- fascinating stuff. It's fascinating, yeah. It's fascinating. I want to ask you. You know, obviously, with the new album, you know what what's your what's your plans? Have you, you know, are you going to be doing virtual gigs and stuff, or what's the plans for the next few months with the release? Well, you
1: know, I mean, the gigs are gone now for a year, and you know, something like, I mean, I've got, I've got, I've gotten by, and I think it was kind of good for me to get an old break. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm inclined to look on the bright side of things, anyway. You know, and uh, what. I, I would actively encourage myself to be positive, but um, there will be no like gigs really to to support the album. Normally, you'd be gigging like mad and selling records, but I mean, I will do um, I do a streaming gig on the first Thursday of every month from the Barra's Folk Club in Clanachiltie here in West Cork, and um, that will be going on, on the first of April, and that'll be the launch really. I'd say, and I don't think there'll be very many. There won't be any gigs here for six another six months. Mm. I'd say, I don't know. Yeah. So um, but I, I will keep. Plugging it online, everything is going online now anyway, it's yeah, the new world
2: it's the new world,
1: you know, so it's the new world, so everything is online and um you know, um people can buy the record from my website so I um, mean this is as a, it's an independent release now on my own my own re- label which I call inspired records and um however well what however well the album will sell, you know the profit will come to me anyway, whatever it is, big or small, Mm, you know what I mean? So it's very interesting in that way.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think the CD, people are still buying a lot of CDs. They say the CD is gone. A lot of people don't have CD players, but I mean, people are still ordering CDs. So, you know, I suppose there'll be a good market for that. And then downloads. Yeah, Yeah. You know, people
0: will buy a download, you know, hopefully. People like to have a physical copy. So I think that's why vinyls have taken off again, because, you know, People want to have a copy they can hold in their hands and look at and put up on the shelf. So I think that's why CDs and vinyls yeah. have a place. I think so. And they say, like, you can't wrap, you can't gift wrap a download. No,
1: not yet anywhere. Not, yeah. not
2: yet. So, um, so yeah, that's... we've ordered
1: two hundred, two hundred vinyls, and and I think they're nearly so they're they're probably sold out now already. So we'll have to get another batch coming. They're very slow to come. Yeah. But um, but. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in good shape here, man, in Passage West and the sun is shining outside. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm, I'm
0: glad to hear that you're keeping well there anyway. And, and, you know, the thing is, we will help you plug the album as well. well. We'll put all the information and we'll inform people about it and we'll share it when it comes out on our channel, you know. And um, so, listen, you know, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed our chat. Very interesting. And, you know, as I always say to my interesting guests, I definitely would like you to come on again in the future, you know. So maybe you'd like to play us a song out. You'd like to do a song for us to finish up, would you? Since you, you seem to like the Irish stuff and you're over in Madrid,
1: it's called We Come in the Wind. Lovely. And um, this song is loosely loosely based on the three Imrams of Irish literature, the voyage of Bran, the voyage of Mweldun, and the voyage of St Brendan. Brilliant. And Imram is a word that's, it's a Latin word, but it, it means a kind of a wonder voyage, but it, 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 it comes into Irish as the word um, um, umrov uh, Imram, umrov it means rowing. Um, and I'd say the word Umrah is the same as it. I'd say Umrah is a wave, you know, Cullum an Umbra and all that. But uh, Imram, there are the three Imrams. Um, Bran is a fabulous old pagan, you know, romance about a journey to the other world and all the magical islands that they go through. The Voyage of Maeldun is a fabulous story about Maeldun. He goes in search of the men who the pirates who uh, murdered his father. And he goes through a series of mystical islands, you know, the island of the laughing people, the island of the sheep, the island of um, the glass tower, you know, and then St. Brendan is the most, mel- the voyage of St. Brendan is the most well-known of the three. That's the Christian one. Yes. You know, that's, a, it's my least favorite actually, because it's all praise, praying, praying, it's all biblical praying, nunks. It's all about monks and praying and, you know, they meet Judas Iscariot on an island they've been eaten by vultures and they meet, there's a lot of, you know, holy, Christianity stuff that's I find very off-putting. But still they go through a series of incredible, mystical, dream-like islands in the voyage of St. Brendan. And uh, that's meant to be historically true, you know, but I think that it's more mythical, really. And I think that even Brendan might be a reworking of Bran. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, St. Brendan is supposed to have discovered America and he sailed from Brandon Creek you know, and there's a big cathedral down there in Clonfert and there's a whole that place in Kerry. And but um, anyway, um, the song comes from those three wonder voyages. And I find myself in the in the in the in the lovely position of being able to tell people about these stories because a lot of people don't know these stories, and it's fabulous to introduce um, people to the, the, the voyage of Bran.
0: Brilliant. You know what I mean? And you might you might check it out yourself on the internet yeah, no, on your I, phone. I mean the I the voyage I... of Bran. I always think these things, when someone tells you something, it lights a little fire and you go, oh, I have to check that out. Yeah. And like the voyage of Bran, son of Feeble,
1: uh, to the other world. So they're all looking for the land of promise. They're all sailed to the west and they go through these crazy islands. Like the, the island of the whale is the most probably well-known one. Like St. Brendan, they pitch, they come to this island and, and they, you know, they light their fire and they camp on the island. And then the following day, the island moves. They're actually on the back of a whale.
0: Oh, yeah. You know,
1: that's... That happens in all the stories. But uh, another story that's linked to these Imrams is the, the voyage of Sinbad the Sailor. Yes. And Sinbad is another well known character from but he's Arabic. Like he's from um, the Middle East, Sinbad. I mean I, I can't remember where or no, like, but somewhere, you know, like it's from um where did Sinbad the Sailor sail from? Yeah. Like, would you give a guess? Um you know somewhere somewhere in the Arabic world yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Somewhere in the Middle East or North Africa. Somewhere I don't know. I should know my geography. But so, um, so anyway, this is called "We Come in the Wind."
2: Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. Once upon a silver moon we sailed for seven summers Through many dreamlike islands in the dark blue sea The island of the promises The island of the women The island of the longing The island of the strong Once upon a silver moon we sailed We come in the wind we leave in the wind we come in the wind we leave in the wind go tell my lady go tell my love we sail with the tide we raised the sail and following the wind of seven winters, we went for the west, we went for the land of promise, for the land of the fair, the island of the apple trees, island of the pleasures, the laughing and the mocking, where we left one friend behind. Then we raised one silver sail and we climbed. We come in the Come in the wind, we leave in the wind. Go tell my lady, go tell my love, we sail with the tide. And found ourselves adrift under a sky of endless velvet blue, and the stars, and the stars, a million trillion galaxies sailing for eternity, and the stars, and then the squares of angels filled the midnight air with the phosphorescence of their radiant prayer, and a paradise of birds, and the ravens in the dark. And the radiance of the moon Just once upon a silver moon we sailed We come in the wind We leave in the wind We come in the wind We leave in the wind Go tell my lady Go tell my love We sail with the tide only once upon a silver moon we sail for seven seasons through many dreamlike islands in the dark blue sea. We come in the wind, we leave in the wind, we come in the wind, we leave in the wind, go tell my lady. Tell my love, we
0: sail with the tide. Wow, John, that's really fantastic. It's a great song, you know, and a lovely sound. Thanks, Simon. Lovely sound. So listen, John, thanks very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time. And I know you're busy at the moment. And we just want to wish you the best. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, say congratulations on all the songs you've written so far and all the work you've done. And best of luck for the next year. And, uh, you know... The, the many months of virtual gigging and promoting the album. You know, we wish you the best of luck. You're very kind. You're very kind. Lovely, John. The John Spillane, everybody. You're very kind, Simon. Lovely to talk to you and good luck now over in Madrid. Thank you, John. OK, we hope you enjoyed that. That was very interesting and some great stories from John there. And we hope you enjoy his new album coming out soon. And it was a pleasure listening to you, John. Thanks very much, you know. Moving on to next week's guest, we're gonna be talking to Pat O'Mahony. Pat is an award-winning Dublin-based freelance TV, radio producer, director and presenter with over 30 years full-time broadcasting experience in Ireland and the UK. Pat has worked with the RTE, bbc itv discovery as well as many others he's also a blogger and podcaster at the award-winning off message podcast covering the media in all its entirety so we hope you enjoy that and we hope you'll tune in and thank you for listening to today's episodes my name is simon k this is the collective whisper podcast look after yourself look after everybody else and we'll talk to you soon take care bye bye